Um, I'm going to bring in now our next, our very special guest. Um, and I'm going to see, uh, Demetra, Dr. Uh, Dr. Femi is here. I'm going to make her an organizer here so that we can hear her voice. And, uh, she can have her join us here. Hi, Demetra. Hello, let me see if I can, uh, if I can remember how to do this. Sorry. <laughs> That's right. It's been a while, I know. So let's see, see, so uh, yeah, I got the, there we go. There we got the webcam going there. Amy, that's a good sign. And gosh, how exciting. I can't believe that. That's a, that's brilliant what you, what you just announced. This yes. Is I'm, I'm so happy to be part of uh, this fundraising event towards the end today. Oh yes, That's thank awesome. you, and thank you so much for for generously joining us today. You know, for 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 donating right. your time to to be with us. This is uh, I've been really excited uh, about this talk. Um, you know, for those of you who don't know Dr. Femi's work, um, you know she uh, she has been doing wonderful work um, in Tolkien stuff for some time, and she you teach you're teaching now on 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 mythology and uh, and 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 fantasy more broadly now as well right yeah yeah i'm doing all sorts of funky things at the moment and um i really love teaching for Mythgard. i mean the students know it better better than anyone uh and i found it very stimulating and although it was a bit strange talking to the camera at the beginning you know you sort of get used to it eventually you do you uh, do yeah, we did the Celtic myth and contemporary children's fantasy um, course, which was which was brilliant. And hopefully, you know, I'll be back at some point to do some more sort of folklore and uh, myth and literature. Absolutely, yeah, we're certainly hoping that. Well, let me let me get out of your way. I'll come back. Um, you know, if there are moments where you want to take breaks, to you know, we can look at questions. Please do. For okay. those of you who are attending live, um, please do go ahead and uh, and and type questions into your questions box. We'll be sort of collecting them as we go, and Dr. Femi, will, I'm sure, will be happy to come back and respond to some of those uh, as we okay. move through. So at those times also you can I'll come back and sort of give updates and uh, and talk about stuff and you can look over the questions and everything at that point so we can pull. Right. I'm going to try and share my screen now and as I said I'm going to uh, hopefully I'll remember how everything works but um, let me see. Okay let's uh, see. I should, I gotta make yes. you the presenter. There right. we go. All right. Oh my Excellent. screen. That looks, that looks all right doesn't it? Right so uh, can people see the screen? I'm doing my usual feedback thing now. There we go, yes. Yes, yes, great, okay. Um, so uh, I'm going to talk today about Halloween, which is topical. You know, this is the day, this is where all is happening, the liminal time where, you know, the the uh, uh, the ghosts are coming around and witches and all sorts of things. So I'll, I'll start with a bit of an overview of um, uh, autumn festivals more generally and Halloween and where does it fit within that and uh, what kind of traditions are around Halloween. And then we'll go into sort of representations of Halloween in literature and, and a, a bit of popular culture as well, but literature mainly. So um, I have, I, I will try, I will refer to a couple of resources that I might try to tweet while Corey's doing some of the in-between bits. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll put my kind of Twitter thing there, but I will also tag Mythgard so you can always get it from there. Um, I'm not very good at this thing, but I'm going to try my best. Okay, so um, the first thing then, uh, I wanted, as I said, to talk about um, Halloween and autumn festivals because I think it's important to sort of make it clear here that this is not just the one night or the one the one day or that one sort of, you know, between the 31st and the 1st of November. There's actually um, a number of different festivals that are happening from the 
end of September all the way to uh, the beginning of November. And this is a time which was important in pre-industrial times, of course, in terms of agriculture or bringing the, um, the livestock uh, from, you know, their pastures in the summer uh, to kind of back to to the farms where the crop had, crops had been gathered. So it, 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 it's very much associated with that. But at the same time, we have a number of religious um, uh, festivals and um, celebrations at the same time. So I've put here, although it's nearly a month before, but, uh, um, the 29th of September, that's Michaelmas. And this is the Feast of St. Michael the Archangel. And again, that is, you know, for a lot of uh, uh, cultures around Europe, is, is an agricultural sort of feast. It's the end of harvest, as I said, bringing the animals in. Uh, all of this is happening. Uh, and at the same time, you know, this is, if, if you think about it, this is where our sort of sense of the school year or the academic year um, comes through as well. But, you know, why does school start in September? Why do we go to school in September and stop in the summer? Because that's the time where, you know, less less hands are needed uh, in agriculture and in farming. You know, let the families could do with sort of leaving the children, you know, stop stop having them kind of working with them in the farms and, and then they could go to school actually in, in the cold months when not very much is happening. While in the summer and sort of late spring, that's when you have everything going on. So you need all hands um, uh, in a farm or, or in a sort of agricultural community uh, altogether. So Halloween then is that period, is, is actually that night, the 31st of October. And when we say Halloween, it's actually the All Hallows Eve. So it is the Eve to the All Saints um, feast, which is on the 1st of November. So we have All Saints, uh, which is, you know, that the 1st of November, that particular day that the church has decided that they're celebrating sort of the multitude of saints. And that happens in most sort of Christian traditions, really. Uh, so it is just the eve to that. And it seems to be some sort of liminal time. And actually, just to complicate things, the day after All Saints, on the 2nd of November, we have All Souls. And that's the day where, again, the church commemorates, again, the multitude, not of saints this time, but the multitude of all human beings who have died. And again, in many sort of Christian traditions, you have uh, memorials for the dead at this time, uh, people visit grave sites, etc. So this sort of period seems to combine, um, as I said, agricultural or um, farming um, events, so something seems to be changing, we're moving time, we're moving from summer to the winter, you know, that the days are getting darker, uh, the night is coming uh, sooner, you know, the whole sort of, the, the weather seems to be changing, and at the same time we have this link to all saints and all souls, so, so you know, dead people are commemorated, uh, and all of that bring, it comes together to create um, Halloween as, as we know today. Now, next to Halloween, the Irish Samhain. Uh, I know it's, it's one of those weird Irish things, you know. I know it's spelled with an M, but it's Samhain, just to, just to confuse everyone. Um, Irish pronunciation and spelling are um, an art upon themselves that I'm not going to go into today. But you will see a lot of times um, in many, in, in actually in, in sometimes in quite reliable books as well, that Samhain was the Celtic New Year or the Celtic Festival of the Dead. Now, I'm very sorry to say it's it's none of those things. Uh, it, it is actually something closer to the agricultural sort of um, uh, liminal festivals in terms of, of, um, of passage of time that I was talking about before. So both Halloween and Samhain are connected with agriculture, with the beginning of the winter, uh, the change of, 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 of the days. Uh, and, and actually, another thing that links the two is communities getting together 
to actually consume food. You know, we seem to have a lot of uh, a lot of gatherings to sort of stuff yourself, really, because this is a time where a lot of food has to be consumed because not all of it can be preserved for the winter. So any surplus food that cannot be preserved needs to be consumed, and also and whatever can be preserved then is sort of stored away. For the winter, so this is also there's some practical reasons why these festivals uh, in folklore are also happening. So Samhain seems to be this more more of a sort of um yeah agricultural farming thing rather than um, a New Year feast or a feast of the dead. That's something actually that comes in with a Christian uh, connection rather than the Celtic one. And you know let let me not start with the whole you know what does Celtic mean and all of that. Let, let's kind of leave that aside for today. Um, yes, I mean those of you who did the Celtic course with me know, know, know my views about it. Anyway, so generally this period seems to be a liminal time, as I was saying before, so a transition period uh, between summer and winter. And and modern Halloween, as we know it today in in the states, and as as we know it today in uh, most of Europe, seems to be a, a conglomeration of customs and beliefs and traditions that seem to originate mainly from Northern England and Scotland, at least in, 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 the, in the sort of our, a way we know them today, which then went to the USA with, you know, the first people, you know, the first, um, uh, the founding fathers, etc. And then it sort of came back, it was re-imported in Europe from America, mainly through popular culture, culture actually, through um, uh, the film industry, etc. So there is a huge revival of Halloween in Europe as well, but it seems to now follow the traditions that were developed in America that are a modification of the old European traditions. So it's a very, very interesting thing that these things sort of come around and um, and change and adapt. Uh, and that what that's what folklore is all about. You know, it's something very adaptable, you know, that's why these feasts um, survive, because we can do different things with them, and it, at different times they mean different things. So that was a very, very, very quick introduction to the, uh, uh, the sort of um, stuff one would expect um, uh, from a sort of anthropological approach to Halloween. Now, I want to go straight to the literature, if that's all right with you, and the first, um, the first text I want to share actually does go to these older Halloween customs that then migrated to America later on, and that's uh, Scotland. And I've got here um, uh, a few extracts, really, because it's a very long poem of, Rob of Robert Burns's Halloween. Um, there's Robert Burns there, you know, dashing as as, as you'd expect. Um, so the poem was published in 1786, and um, that was part of his collection of poems, chiefly in the Scottish dialect. So there's, a, there's a, a particular sort of use of dialect here that I'll talk about a, a little bit later. Um, it's important really to, really to sort of draw your attention to the fact that this is post-Union. You know, we're here in after seven, 1707 when Scotland and England have united to create um, Great Britain. So there is a bit of an anxiety here about Scottish cultural identity. Um, you know, now that they've all become British, is Scotland losing its sort of individuality? And it seems that we have, um, in that period in Scotland, and, and in other places in Britain, but it's Scotland in particular, um, by people like Robert Burns, this um, desire and this urge to sort of preserve local, regional customs and beliefs and stories and folklore and, and, and ballads, you know, and all, all of this material and preserve it for posterity, but at the same time sort of reinvigorate um, a sense of a distinct Scottish identity. 
so that is part of the, the project really that Burns is, 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 is undertaking here with this poem. And of course the poem became wildly uh, popular in the Victorian period because we have all of this revival of Victorian interest in the past and especially the Scottish past, you know, Queen Victoria um, famously, you know, would, would, um, would stay in Scotland on holidays, you know, we have her sort of pictured wearing tartan, etc. So it's all very romantic, you know, it, it is the, the apogee of romanticism really. So all of this Victorian interest in the past made the poem very, very popular in the 19th century. Actually on both sides of the Atlantic, both in Britain and in America, it became a, a pretty recognisable, uh, important poem. Now, the poem recounts actually the celebration of Halloween in a cottage in uh, southern Scotland, it's Ayrshire actually, on the night of October the 31st. So this is, it, it is a commemoration of the custom as it would have happened at the time, or hopefully as, as Robert Burns hopes it would have happened at the time, I suppose. Um, I, I said before that um, this is from a collection of poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect, and he uses the Scottish dialect pretty self-consciously, and he spells in the poem in a way that the Scottish dialect is... Um, pretty clear and and um, sort of uh, underlined, you would say, you know, he, he's really drawing attention to it. And um, in, in his publication of the poem, he actually ends up sort of providing notes on the site to transcribe or to translate some dialect words. Because this poem has an interesting position, it sort of sits in between um, the educated reader, Okay, so the people who, the middle, upper middle class, sort of upper class people who could read, who could buy books at the time, you know, who were interested in the primitive sort of customs of the peasants, um, but might not understand a lot of them or might not understand the dialect. And at the same time, the poem is caught between that audience, the educated audience, and the actual people it's supposed to represent, the peasants, the, 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 the people who, who do sort of follow these customs, the, the illiterate, uh, very often uh, um peasants. So we have this sort of, it, it, this poem is liminal itself in a way, it's caught between the polite audience um, of the people who don't, might not necessarily understand these customs and need somebody like Robert Burns to explain them to them and the actual people it represents. And, and the politics are quite interesting there. Um, and this is all about really how, how folklore really began. It was this idea of the educated folklorist or anthropologist would go out there, collect the stories from the peasants and then ex explain to the peasants themselves what their customs and, and, and beliefs meant. You know, folklore has moved you know, a, a long way from, from that model and uh, there's much more respect for the people who are actually... Um, still sort of uh, uh, are within a living tradition. But this is a very, very, very old model really here. So um, I wanted to sort of start with, I mean, I heard before earlier on uh, Corey saying that the audio might not work, but I might give it a go and do give me feedback. And if it doesn't work, I'll just stop and we'll kind of move to the first extract. But there is a, a, I'm not confident enough to do a reading of the proper Scottish dialect, but there is a brilliant recording uh, on the BBC website which might or might not work. So I'm going to give it a go. If you can't hear it, just uh, if one of you types, you know, I can't hear anything, I'll just stop it and, and go to the next slide. But it's worth a try because it's, it's, it's really, really nice. And as I said, I can't, I can't do it justice myself. So let's see. Let's see if we're going to. If, if can make it work. So the poem is here. I'm only going to play the first two stanzas because, as I said, it is, is quite a long one. So let's see. Upon that neck of fairies and that Priscilla's diamonds dance, or o'er the leaves in splendid blaze on sprightly coursers prance, 
or for Colleen the right to stain beneath the moon's pale beams, there up the cove to stray and rove among the rocks and streams to sport that night. Among the bonny winding banks, where dune rins went unclear, where Bruce Ains ruled the martial ranks and shook his carrick spear, some merry, friendly counterfolks together did convene to burn their nets and poo the stocks and hold their Halloween full blight that night. Okay, I'm going to stop it here. Um, I hope you heard that. <laughs> I really do. Um, because it's, it's, it's just, it's, I just find it um, exceptionally moving in a way how, how you know, he managed to sort of convey the, um, the Scottish dialect so nicely and, and actually to put it on paper in, in a way that uh, was a bit unorthodox, I suppose, but uh, it still reads quite nicely today. Okay, so I'm going to talk about some of the some of the customs and beliefs and and rituals that uh, Robert Burson is mentioning in the poem. So uh, the first one is well, first of all, most of them tend to be divination rites, so uh, uh, predicting the future or having a sense of what might happen, and most of them seem to be associated with, with marriage and with sex. So there seems to be a particular interest here uh, of uh, possibly. Um, uh, contributors to the feast that are adolescents or, or teenagers would call them I suppose today so it's the younger generation who seems to be engaging with all of these rituals and customs so the first one is pulling the kale we hear about the custom of pulling the kale which is cabbage stalks and the idea is that according to the shape of the kale or, or the taste that reveals the nature and disposition of the spouse-to-be so this sort of um, uh, the prediction about you know, who you will marry, will there be a good person, will there be a bad person, etc. Another Rachel was the pulling of a stock of grain. Uh, and again, that has to do with marriage. If the top of the grain is missing, then the girl who's playing this game uh, would not be a verging on her wedding day. So again, we have something associated with sort of sexuality and marriage here. Uh, burning nuts, burning nuts named after potential lovers. So you take a nut, you name it after the person, you know, the person you um, you love. And the way they burn reveals the course of the courtship. So will the, the um, nuts sort of, the chestnuts sort of uh, stay in the fire and uh, or will they blaze or will they jump out of the pan, you know, and that will show you whether you'd have a sort of theory um, relationship or it will all go, you know, it will all go wrong. Um, eating apples in front of a mirror uh, is also a ritual which was associated with revealing your future spouse. See also all the products using in, uh, used in all of these rituals has to do with the, with the time of the year. And finally, the, the, the funniest ones, the dipping, dipping your finger while blindfolded in one of three plates containing clean water or dirty water or nothing. So you, you don't know which one you're going to dip your finger in. And the idea is that if you, if you um, dip your finger in the container with the clean water, then you'll be a virgin at marriage. If it's dirty water, you're not going to be a virgin. And if, it's, if, it's, um, if there's nothing in there, then you'll be a spinster. You, know, you won't marry at all. So um, you see here an anxiety, really, about a good marriage and about... Um, um, Sort of your, about sexuality, and it seems like these these games, these rituals, these uh, these customs, were very often mainly observed by women. And this, if, if we think about sort of the society of the town at the time, and if we think about um, you know what what women could do, or what you know what their their prospects were, uh, for a lot of them, the only prospect was was a good marriage, you know, a, a, and having a 
um, uh, the future would be um, uh, secure only in that way. So clearly a lot of these anxieties are translated in all of these customs that happen at this point. Uh, so making sure that, uh, you know, um, the, the girls of the family or, you know, the young girls themselves thinking about their futures, they would be all right. So two examples here from the poem itself. This is uh, one of the stanzas I had in mind. This is the burning of the nuts that I talked about before. And this is an example of sort of love hurting. And as I said, I'm not going to try and read the Scottish dialect myself, but you will see that uh, the way Burns has published the poem, we have little sort of um, glosses there. So in blue, you can see, you know, what the dialect word means. So Jean slips in two with careful eye, slips in two, two nuts with careful eye. Uh, what was she wouldn't tell? So she wouldn't, she wouldn't say whose name. But this is Jock and this is me, she says into herself. So she sort of, she knows who, you know, who she's got in mind with those nuts. He blazed over her and she over him as they were never more part till fuff he started up the lump and Jean had eaten a sore heart to see that night. So this is a girl who clearly is in love with over the boy called Jock and she puts the two nuts in the fire and it seems like it's all kind of um, a firing and they, they seem to sort of mix together so everything's going to be fine while fuff suddenly the, 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 um, um, the nuts jump out of the pan, you know, there's a fire and it's not, you know, the, 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 the idea is that it's all going to go, yeah, it's all going to go wrong. So she's going to be hurt. She's going to be, um, the romance is not going to flourish the way she wanted. And the second uh, stanza that's further down the line, uh, uh, more of a sort of um, a scandalous one, this one. The lasses stole from among them up. So the lasses stole away from all to pour the stocks of corn. Remember the, the, the custom of pulling a stock of corn and revealing you know, whether you'll be a virgin at marriage. But Rub slips out and jinks about behind the muckle thorn. He gripped Nelly hard and fast. Lo skittled are the lasses, or all the girls shrieked. But her tap pickle mice was lost. But her tap pickle mice was lost, what cutling in the fowl's house with him that night. The top of her stock was almost lost while cuddling with him in the barn that night. So nearly, you know, nearly she sort of um, lost her, her virtue here that night. So again, you see here how Halloween seems to be a time where the community comes together, as I said before, to kind of eat and drink and be merry and sort of um, mark this passing of time. But clearly for the young people here, for the teenagers, for the adolescents, this is a time for sort of thinking about love, thinking about marriage, and possibly, you know, it's a pretext for sexual encounters. And that is quite an authentic and realistic sort of representation of how these community festivals uh, would have worked. So there is this sort of opportunity here to um, to let let off steam um, and to possibly sort of uh, indulge in, in in transgressive behavior, behavior that you wouldn't necessarily you know would be frowned upon in normal social circumstances. So in, in Robert Burns' then poem, Halloween is not what we think of it today as a children's festival, as a festival where children go out and do uh, trick or treating, or you know it's mainly for the benefit of the children. It's all about sugar and sort of candy and that sort of stuff. Well, as befitting a liminal festival, in that time when Robert Burns is writing, it belongs to those between childhood and adulthood in that liminal time, in that adolescent time. There is emphasis on courtship customs, as I said, on sexual opportunities, and of course it's a time to experiment and possibly to, as I said, kind of transgress a little bit. 
Uh, and I've got some of the illustrations really here that accompanied various editions and, and publications of the poem. And that in, they really imply this context. So this is um, the, the beginning of the poem here, that very first um, illustration on the left, where you see young and old people, you know, the older, the, 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 the old lady here, there is um, kind of preparing stuff in the fire. There's an older man playing the violin in the back. But look at the younger people sort of in the front, ready to... Um, to uh, indulge in, in, in um, a, you know, a bit of frolicking, I suppose. Look at the background here, for example. Or on the on the right, we actually have a typical Halloween prank where somebody's playing a prank. A prank with you can see a pig here in a lantern, and somebody has been fright, uh, frightened out of his wits, which is again part of the Halloween thing. But um, more interestingly, probably those second two uh, illustrations. This is on the left. Is a custom with dipping your finger in the in the container with a clean water, dirty water or none. Again, this anxiety about who you're going to marry. But of course, here on the right, that's uh, based on that um, um, stanza I read to you before with a sort of, you know, flirting, courting, possibly, you know, uh, uh, verging into more sort of um, um, transgressive behaviour, especially at a time where uh, these sorts of things, you know, aren't, aren't allowed. Okay. Um, is this a good place to stop for a minute and see if there are any questions. Um, I can't see anything. Oh, let me see. Um, let me see if I can remember how to find the questions. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, I can see. Yeah, so it looks um, like we, can, yeah, we don't have any uh, certain questions right now. I think uh, people, okay. if you have another chance to type them in, people, you should certainly do that. Um, but um, but yeah, I think you could actually you could uh, continue if you like. You have it, permit continue. Right, I'm going to go on then. I'm going to go on. Excellent. Um, okay then. So this was the first sort of text, which actually goes back to quite an early sort of representation of Halloween, which, as I said, is closer to um, um, to the origins of the festival, as far back as we can go. You know, it's difficult to sort of would be nice, wouldn't it be, to to, to time travel and see how they really did Halloween in the Middle Ages. But there we are. We can't. We can't quite do that. So Robert Burns is is a is a is a good representation. Although I, I did try to sort of trace some of the problems there in terms of the, what kind of audiences he's uh, he's addressing. Now the next text I wanted to to talk about is actually an American text, and it is it becomes an iconic text really, and that is Washington Irving's um, uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Now this is a short story. Well, my students always shout at me when I say it's a short story and then I make them read it, because actually it's not very short. Uh, it's called a short story, but it's quite a long story. Um, anyway, so uh, I don't know, I suppose we'd call it, it it's not as, as long as a novella really, but anyway, it's a long short story. And it's included in his collection, The Sketchbook of Geoffrey Cray and Gent of 1820, where he sort of takes up this persona of this traveller who goes around and, and, and tells stories. There's a couple of essays in that collection as well. That's the same book, actually, where Rip Van Winkle is in. So you might know it uh, because of that. So The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, I presume many of you will know one of, a num one of a number of adaptations. Uh, but those of you that have read uh, the story will know that we have the story of this kind of uh, awkward and tall and gangly sort of protagonist, and vain as well protagonist, uh, Ichabod Crane, who's a school teacher. Uh, and he arrives in the northern um, New York kind of community of Sleepy Hollow, and he finds himself completely in love with Katrina von Tassel, who is the daughter of a local farmer and also his student. So it's all very um, 
um, again, sort of not quite scandalous, but you know, you know where where this thing is going into uh, into a slightly transgressive or dangerous situation. So what happens is that uh, in time, you know, as as you know, she becomes close to the family. She invites him to her father's autumn feast. Feast. Now this is called an autumn feast, but clearly from you know the kind of customs that are, are are described and the kind of community gathering that we've got, it is a Halloween party really or a Halloween feast. Uh, and that um, actually, Ichabod Crane at this point thinks, "Oh, okay. If I'm invited to this, clearly they are uh, they are considering me as a as a um, um, candidate for Katrina's hand for Katrina, uh, you know, kind of asking asking uh, for her hand from her father." Now, it's not quite like that, as he as we found out later. So near the close of the event, uh, as as you know, the, the night comes to towards its end, uh, the men. Uh, who are there at the house start exchanging scary stories. So again, that's part of the, you know a lot of Halloween traditions, which is towards the end of the night when the whole thing, uh, you know, the whole sort of parting and frolicking sort of starts dying down. It's kind of gathering around the fire and sharing scary stories. So Brom Bones, who is a rival for uh, Katrina's um, heart, Katrina's affections, tells a vivid story of the headless horseman. So a dark demon, dark demonic sort of creature uh, who travels the countryside at night and and chops people's heads off. Uh, so clearly this is you know one of those uh, one of those folkloric motifs and I'll come back to sort of the sources uh, of this story in a bit. Um, and Ichabod Crane later on leaves the Halloween celebration clearly quite scared and affected by by this story this ghost story and he finds himself actually face to face you know confronted uh, in the darkness by the headless horseman who appears to actually he appears to have uh, his, his head tucked under one arm uh, which again reminds us of a lot of uh, uh, older sort of European mythological stories so he goes for him you know the headless horseman pursues um, uh, Ichabod and as you know he you know he tries to escape and we have this very sort of fast paced description of, his, of the chase um, the, the headless horseman hurls the severed head at the horrified crane and what we hear is by next morning all that can be seen is a smashed pumpkin um, and that remains where the head would have been, you know, if if, if we sort of believe all of this as as a real uh, occurrence. So all of that leads the reader to to sort of not be quite sure whether whether really Ichabod Crane saw the headless horseman or whether that was a prank, you know, the, 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 whether there was somebody dressed up as um, um, or kind of trying to scare Ichabod dressed up as this this demonic figure and actually it was just a pumpkin rather than, you know, the, the head of the headless horseman uh, and whether this is, you know, uh, um, uh, Brom himself trying to scare off his rival for Katrina's heart, as I was saying before. Well, if that is the case, and it's never completely clear, uh, he succeeds, because because Crane, terrified, mortified, flees Sleepy Hollow, he leaves Katrina von Tassel and, and Brom Bones to marry, so that kind of romance finishes quite nicely. And as the legend has it, you know, as the story ends, Crane's tormented presence still lingers uh, in the dark uh, in the dark nights in Sleepy Hollow. And that's how it all ends. So it's all, you know, it, it is within the gothic vein, I suppose. We're never quite sure whether it happened or it didn't, whether, you know, the supernatural is real or whether it's all explained away via prank. Um, my personal sort of... Um, um, uh, uh, my inkling when I read this story or whenever, whenever I've, you know, I've read it a few times and I'm always sort of um, 
for a while I've, I've, I was thinking both possibilities are there. I'm, I'm leaning more towards the prank really here and that's what a lot of illustrations have kind of picked up. Um, so I've got here the, the painting by John Quiddo which was done in 1858, the headless horseman pursuing Ichabod Crane and here clearly he's taken the pumpkin to be um, you know, part of the whole thing, rather than the head of the headless horseman, who you know, which he's uh, holding uh, underneath his um, underneath and underneath his arm. Um, but as I said, you know, you could interpret it in different ways. So what do we have here? We have actually an adaptation of European folklore. Okay, so the idea of the headless hunter. You know, there's quite a few stories of headless hunters uh, in uh, in European texts. Uh, I mean, most famously, I suppose, as Mythgard students, you'll all be familiar with um, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and the Green Knight sort of having his head chopped off and then tucking it under his arm and saying, goodbye, I'll see you next year. So, you know, you know it's not going to end very well. Um, so definitely a European folkloric story here. Um, apparently, um, you know, people that have done sort of the research think that it's, it's probably a Dutch story, a Marhen. Uh, uh, Dutch Machen. Uh, but clearly it's all put in an American context. We've got an American community and an American festival um, and um, a, a Dutch-American sort of uh, community there. Now it's interesting also that um, we have here the use of the native pumpkin. Now I talked about sort of the fact that um, the Halloween festival as we know today starts from Northern England and Scotland and moves to America and then comes back. Now a pumpkin is not a native British um, uh, product at all, you know. We, actually, we know that in Northern England and Scotland, they were using other sort of um, plants of the same family, like squashes or marrows, you know, that sort of thing, which are actually pretty hard to carve, you know. So when the uh, when uh, uh, we have the sort of first American adaptations of this festival and of these customs, the Native American the pumpkin, which is an American plant, American product. Um, actually works so much better you know it's so much so much easier to carve and it works so much nicer and I think you know here we have um, um, a Washington Irving um, adapting this and kind of using the American context at the same time the story is both frightening so it feels like it belongs to a sort of Halloween night but at the same time it's quite funny you know, Ichabod Crane is a caricature of character. We laugh at him quite a lot. You know, we can't take him seriously. There's a lot of jokes, uh, and, and of course, the prank, if you take it as a prank, uh, at the heart of the story. So it's a good combination of a Halloween story, really, here. The, the, the funny, the humorous element, but the, the frightening element as well. And uh, as I said, I'm sure many of you will know one of the adaptations and the two I mean I know there's the very recent series I'm not going to talk about this but the two the two I've got in mind but actually I've chosen them because they're completely opposite to each other is the the Disney adaptation which some of you might know that's from 1949 it was actually uh, narrated by Bing Crosby and there's there's nice songs in there and you know as per usual with Disney films and that one is taking up the prank story so the whole thing is revealed to be just a prank um, and it's all about sort of taking the mick out of Ichabod Crane and yeah there are some sort of scary scenes there but uh, it's all explained away at the end so this is the explained sort of gothic story while the, um, the poster on the left which is uh, Tim Burton's C.P. Hollow with, um, uh, with uh, uh, Johnny Depp that is a completely different thing because this takes the supernatural element as real it accepts it as, as a real presence and we do have this tormented sort of uh, ghostly demonic headless warrior who is a real supernatural character and we and we accept him as such uh, in the story 
So two completely different adaptations here. Uh, and I think that sort of shows, again, the adaptability and the, the flexibility of this particular tale, that you can do something so different with it. Although the storyline is the same, um, the Disney story is essentially a, a humorous one, while the Tim Burton one is uh, a, a proper gothic, sort of the old-fashioned gothic that uh, is supposed to scare the wits out of, out of you. And, and also talks about a lot of metaphysical, uh, there are a lot of metaphysical concerns there, and a lot of Freudian things going on in this story too, as opposed to uh, the funny sort of uh, cartoon caricature Disney one. Okay, so uh, these, are my, these are my first two texts that are slightly older um, representations of Halloween and I suppose they were sort of kind of expected texts as well. Robert, uh, Robert Burns' Halloween, a classic uh, uh, text really to talk about uh, the folklore customs and beliefs about Halloween and Sleepy Hollow, a, a classic American sort of um, story which fits within this period. Um, what I want to move to next now is sort of, again, following with the idea of American Halloween, I want to talk about three American classics which you might not expect and their Halloween associations. Um, so shall I, shall I take a break here, Corey? What do you think? Oh, I can see some questions. Ooh. Sure, yes. yes. So, so. Um, yeah, uh, Andrew just oh. uh, asked a question there. Um, but... Um, uh, yeah, so just uh, just a, a little brief update. Thanks everybody uh, again for participating in our uh, in our fundraising campaign today. Um, I just wanted to uh, uh, just kind of kind of come on to encourage you to remember to to continue to give those of you who haven't had a chance to donate yet. I hope that you will take advantage of the opportunity uh, as we go along today. Um, we are you know really working to build something special here at Signum University, and you guys have been so helpful uh, in really making that possible. You know, there's no way for us to be able to achieve our goals of being able to give away as much as we do and being able to, uh, to sort of offer courses as, as, as inexpensively as we do offer them uh, without your help and support. So, you know, all of the, the money that we're getting now is all going to be going towards increasing our, our, our student support, really building our program to put our, our program on a, on a, on a much firmer footing as far as what we're able to offer to our students and, um, and, uh, and, you know, we've uh, been operating on a very, uh, very, very narrow shoestring here over the course of the 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 our first several years. Um, and it's going to be really wonderful to be able to expand that a little bit. So uh, it's um, uh, it's been uh, it's been great the donations that have been coming in. So uh, thanks again, and I hope that uh, um, that you guys will still go to our uh, go to our fund page and check that out and uh, and make sure that you will continue to give over the course of the day. Thank you very much. Lovely, that's great. Yes, please continue giving. I, 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 would, I want to be the lucky one tonight. Let's see if we can. Let's see if we can reach the, <laughs> the goal. That would be lovely. That would be absolutely lovely. Um, there's the one question that I can see here, which I think I answered, which is about whether the Sleepy Sleepy Hollow is one of the earliest stories where the pumpkin is associated with Halloween. And yeah, yeah, that's that's right. That's spot on. Uh, as I was saying before, it squashes all. I think. It's Andy Higgins, is it? Yes. Andy is, is uh, mentioning turnips as well. Yeah, turnips were used in uh, North America, uh, North uh, uh, England and Scotland too. But uh, as, I, as I said before, the pumpkin is so much easier to kind of make into a lantern, really. It's such a, it's much bigger plant, so much softer to sort of carve, etc. So of course, you know, the American pumpkin's taken over for practicality reasons as well. It's a, 
you know, it's, it's a tough job to do that with a turning bar or a squash. So there we go. Okay, so um, as I said, uh, just just to say, I've, I've, I've tweeted the the link to the. Um, if you, I don't know how many of you managed to listen to the to the uh, reading of the uh, Robert Burns's Halloween in the Scottish dialect by Ralph Riach that I played before. Uh, just in case, I've just tweeted the link to that. So please go in your own time and, and listen to it because it's it's just lovely. It's really really good, and and I, I can never I can never do it. Um, okay. Right, somebody saying here that there's no audio. Um, Corey, can can you hear me? Is that something I'm doing wrong here? Nope, I've got you fine. I think that must be on the other You've end. Got me. So okay. yeah. Ah, okay, fine, fine, okay. Um, right, okay, great. All right then. So um, the next then three texts that um, I wanted to talk about are, as I, I call them, sort of American classics, uh, but you might not necessarily expect them. So first, the first one is the one whose um, the cover of which you can see here, "Tree Grows in Brooklyn" by Betty Smith. The other one is actually it's a series of short stories that then became a novel and then became a film, and you probably know the film best, and that is "Meet Me in St. Louis." And finally, probably the one that uh, is the most unexpected, uh, which is uh, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, which I'm sure all of you know. So let's let's go and see one by one really um, what's happening here. Um, the Tree Grows in Brooklyn is a, um, a book really close to my heart. You know, I sort of grew up with this book and I read it again and again and again as a, as a young girl. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful um, novel. Uh, and there is only one, you know, there is a, uh, in the first chapters, you, you take, it takes you through the whole year of that little girl's life. And a lot of the stuff that happens isn't just, you know, experiences like going to school for the first time and, um, sort of slowly growing up and things changing. But it's also those sort of folkloric customs, uh, beliefs, rituals, etc. So you have her first Christmas that she remembers and the first Easter. You know, she's a, she's a Catholic. She comes from a sort of Irish um, family. And, of course, one of them is Halloween. And there is a scene there uh, out of which, you know, I've extracted a few a few bits and pieces. So our heroine here is Francie, Francie Nolan. And this is how, you know, this whole section about um, the year and the customs is introduced. Francie counted the years passing, not by the days or the months, but by the holidays that came along. You know, isn't that a, an interesting sort of way of thinking about sort of the year as marked by holidays? And this is something that um, is a very common human thing, really, to mark the year by particular festivals and holidays. So there's Halloween. The next holiday was Halloween. Neely, that's her brother, her younger brother, Neely blackened his face with soot, wore his cap backwards and his coat inside out. He filled one of his mother's long black stockings with ashes and roamed the streets with his gang, swinging his homely blackjack and crying out raucously from time to time. Francie, in company with other little girls, roamed the streets carrying a bit of white chalk. She went about drawing a large quick cross on the back of each coated figure that came by. Um, and this is now how the authorial voice sort of continues here. Um, the children performed the ritual without meaning. The symbol was remembered, but the reason forgotten. It may have been something that had survived from the Middle Ages when houses and probably individuals were so marked to indicate where plague had struck. Probably the ruffians of that time so marked innocent people as a cruel joke and the practice had persisted down through the centuries to be distorted into a meaningless Halloween prank. 
Okay, so there's something, some interesting stuff that's uh, happening in these two extracts. So if I can sort of go back to the first one. First of all, you see we've got different practices for girls and for boys. So um, the boy, Neely, is, is uh, kind of going out with other boys in a gang and sort of doing their own thing, and the girls are doing a separate thing on their own. So we seem to, be, we seem to have sort of gendered uh, customs here, or gendered rituals um, um, as part of this. And, and if you see what Neely does with the boys, is that they're reversing everything. He's blackening his face from, from white, he becomes black. He wears his cap backwards and his coat inside out. So everything is reversed, everything is upside down, everything is topsy-turvy. And of course, the costume that he's wearing here is homemade, it's made out of cheap material. You know, we are here in a poor urban environment. This isn't sort of the, the countryside, uh, the peasants we saw with uh, Robert Burns, or again, the countryside really, um, um, or the, the, yeah, the, the countryside as we saw in Sleepy Hollow. This is, this is um, an urban environment, but a very working class sort of poor urban environment. Um, so, this, it, it, it is interesting really to reflect upon that and reflect on how Halloween has really come all the way to today where we still use costumes but of course Halloween today is an industry it's something that you know a lot of money is made uh, uh, around Halloween uh, and uh, you know the, the sale of costumes etc we're still here in the more sort of authentic, authentic I suppose um, period where these things are homemade and even the poor you know the, the poor people are making them out of whatever they've got at the same time, you know, if you see what Neely is doing and what the girls are doing, we seem to have here uh, sort of groups of unsupervised children. Okay, which is something that again we've moved away from today. You know, we we are very we're much more aware of sort of the dangers of children on their own. Some people would say that we've sort of gone the other, you know, the other extreme, and we're we're, we're uh, sort of mothering and fathering our children too much. We don't allow them to go out there and sort of. Um, uh, be children. But anyway, we do today try to control Halloween activities for children. So we have parties that we organize, uh, you know, kind of smaller communities have community-based parties, but they're all officially organized rather than this sort of thing that we see here as portrayed as sort of the, the, the first few decades of the 20th century, where it seems still to be uh, a, a case of children running riot, and that's fine, that's, that's sort of tolerated by the community. Now, what happens with Francie and the girls is also interesting because they go around with this chalk and sort of mark this cross sign. Um, but here we have this very common situation of a custom which is repeated year after year but nobody remembers anymore what it's for. And sometimes folklore does that. You know, the practice is more important than the meaning. The repetition is more important than the meaning. And what happens in the second sort of extract, the second slide, uh, is that the authorial voice here seems to be creating her own interpretation. We've got Betty Smith here who sort of tries to explain it and she invents this story about possibly the plague and marking sort of um, uh, victims of the plague and maybe that was a prank and maybe that continued. You know, all of this is very maybe, you know, all of this is very hypothetical and there's not, there's not much evidence. For, for what she suggests here. But actually, that's again the power of folklore here. It's so versatile. It's something that different people can interpret in different ways according to you know, whatever suits their needs at different times. And I think this is quite a nice example of all of these things, of how Halloween has moved from then to today, how we've moved actually from the Robert Burns and sort of Sleepy Hollow situation to a more sort of modern urban, uh, but at the same time not as far you know, uh, as, as our customs today. So that was a very quick example, really, from a much longer novel. But I think it shows, you know, a lot of key things about Halloween. Now, Meet Me in St. Louis. Meet Me in St. Louis is a, is a brilliant um, 
um, is a brilliant uh, text, and, and you know I am really talking mainly about the film here. So this is 1944. It was a musical. It was directed by uh, Vincent Minnelli. It starred Judy Garland. They actually, um, I think, they met on the set of that um, of that film, and then later on married. Um, and the film actually follows the life of an American family at the time of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition World's Fair, which took part in 1904. So this is a 1940s representation of a turn-of-the-century um, year in, in the life of an American family at that particular time. And the film is actually all about, again, this passage of time, the year, the festivals, the customs. It's a brilliant film to use, you know, if you're, if you're teaching folklore. That I've, I've found myself sort of using it for different festivals, actually, in the past. And the film is divided into four parts that represent the four seasons. So the whole thing is structured around the year and passage of time. So we have a whole big scene about Halloween. We have a whole big scene about Christmas and what Christmas traditions and... and, and um, Customs are there. Actually, um, a lot of people don't. You, do you, I'm sure you all know the the uh, song "Have Yourselves a Merry Little Christmas." Well, a, a lot of people know the song, of course, but not too many people know that it comes from that particular film. So it was quite influential. You know, it's sort of in a way, it's, it's funny. It, it created one of the Christmas traditions by kind of giving us um, 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 very successful Christmas song. Anyway. Leave Christmas aside. We'll do another thing about Christmas at some point. Um, but Halloween is, is one of those sort of central um, scenes in it, and that's what I want to discuss. The movie actually was originally, as I said, a series of short stories by Sally Benson, and then she turned them into that sort of, that sort of no novel or novella, and, uh, and then it was, uh, it was made into a film. The short stories were originally published in the New Yorker magazine, so they were... Um, in a way, that's why they follow the year, because they were published you know in in, in different at different times uh, within within a period uh, and then as I said they should turn them into a novel so the the scene I want to discuss and now again I, I, I do have um, a clip I wanted to play but now I'm really really worried that nobody will be able to to listen to to hear it so I don't know whether I should or I shouldn't maybe I shouldn't maybe um, I would say actually yeah, give it I a shot Demetra we could hear the other give one, it a shot, so, okay. yeah Okay, okay, I'll give it a try. Let me introduce it first. So this is this is the bit. Uh, Judy Garland, sort of one of the, the young girls in the family. So so the young unmarried girl, who, who of course is going to have a romance later on in the story. But we have the very the the, the youngest girl, the little girl, Tuti. Uh, and Tootie uh, roams the neighborhood after dusk at Halloween. She's dressed up as a ghost, you know, as you'd expect. Uh, and she joins other children around a bonfire, as you, we will see. And she plays a prank at one of the neighbors, as you'd expect her to do. And this is the neighbor where, you know, they're all suspecting that he's an evil person and he's doing sort of evil things. So let's see if it works. Um, yeah, if I can have some sort of quick feedback on whether it works or not, because otherwise I don't want to, you know, I don't want to waste uh, three, four minutes um, on something you can't see but yeah let's see if it if it'll work it's the sound mainly that is the problem isn't it let's see
be careful tonight and don't run over Mrs. Truett's lawn. It's just been planted. We won't. She's nice. But wait till you see what we do to Mr. Raukoff. That'll be a caution, won't it, to him? We'll fix him fine. <laughs> It'll serve him right for poisoning cats. Does he poison cats? He buys meat, and then he buys poisons, and then he puts them all together, and then he burns the cats at midnight in his furnace. You can smell the smoke. That's horrible. Are you sure? Johnny Tavis smelled the smoke and peeked in through the window, and there was a box of dead cats. And Mr. Brockhoff was beating his wife with a bad hot poker. I never would have believed it. He looks like such a quiet man. And you know something else? Don't tell. You crossed your heart, you wouldn't tell. I crossed it with my left hand. back home early or no ice cream gosh don't I recognize this sort of this sort of, um, warning okay so let me see most people were saying that they could see it and hear it um, um, some people had jumpy image but they could hear it so I'm inclined to sort of talk about this bit and then maybe play one more minute of the the actual prank if that's all right uh, Corey could you could you hear it and see it Yes, the, the the picture is a little jumpy. That often happens on a screen share, but um, the 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 sound was very clear. The sound was good. Okay, all right. So it's it's worth pursuing this. Then I think it's quite an important an important thing that's happening here. So first of all, we have this sense of setting up the scene for the prank, uh, and I think it's quite important here to talk about how Halloween is sort of building communities uh, and getting getting communities kind of behind the different causes, right or wrong. So clearly the children here are um, kind of dressed to frighten. Okay, they are of course the you know the, the maid is sort of pretending she's afraid, but the children are loving the fact that she, you know they think she she genuinely is. But clearly themselves are quite scared. You know that night they hear this boo and uh, and they're thinking oh watch that you know and you can see you can see how they're you know how creepy all of that is for them. But before you know when they're talking to the uh, older sister about Mister. 
uh, Berkhoff and they're saying uh, Braukhoff, sorry, and they're saying how he's awful and he does this and he does that. But you know, as, as viewers here, we are invited to sort of doubt a lot of what they say uh, because of how the sister is reacting to all of this and saying, "Really? Are you sure?" Uh, and and um, but at the same time, she doesn't quite challenge them very strongly. So it seems like these sort of rumors are okay as long as you know they don't sort of. Um, um, get out of control. So let's see now what happens when uh, Trudy Tutti later on gets out and she's sort of challenged by the boys around the bonfire to go and kill uh, is the is the uh, phrase they use, uh, Mr. Braukoff. And by kill they mean the Halloween symbolic sort of thing where you throw flour at somebody on their faces and that means you've killed them. Okay. So let's see what happens. Hopefully uh, that'll be all right. Let's see if I can speed it to uh, where I want it to be. Because this is all again very technologically sort of, you know, usually beyond me, but let's see. Okay. Right. 
slide and I'm going to stop it here and hopefully now be able to return to that PowerPoint. There you go. So um, again, hopefully most of you sort of managed to see or at least listen to most of this most of this bit. So um, you know, these are these are some of the stills from those particular scenes. Then the, the Agnes and little Tooty there, Tooty going for Mr. Braukoff and throwing the flower on him, and then finally returning to the bonfire. And you know, this particular line I think it kind of resonates. I killed him. I'm the most horrible. I'm the most horrible. Uh, we've got all sorts of things going on here. First of all, we have this idea of um, the feeling of community. So all of those children out there around the bonfire, uh, the masking and unmasking that we saw in the first scene where the girls are sort of frightening the maid and then they have to pull down their masks and say who they are. So, so this idea of sort of trust and recognizing someone under a mask is quite important. That happens also later when the you know the two girls get out and um, join the children in the bonfire, and also telling actually true danger from uh, sort of fake scares is an important part of what's happening here. And 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 clearly uh, the the Mr. Barkov story about how horrible he is and what he does to cats and he beats his wife. Clearly that's not you know we know the moment we see him and from how the sister reacts as I said before that this isn't true. You know he's actually quite you know he's actually. Um, entertaining um, this whole sort of prank that Tootie's playing and he kind of tries to scare her with a boo but it, it's a bit of a, of a joke for him and he sort of wipes the flower off his face and then we see his dog eating the flower so it's all very very funny and, and you know kind of tongue-in-cheek but at the same time it seems like these stories are portrayed here as binding the community together and and Tootie is undertaking this you know I'm going to go and kill Mr. Brackoff on my own. And that's something she's scared. You know, she's scared out of her wits to do, but she goes and does it because then she will be accepted by the older children as a member of that sort of community of children who are taking part in Halloween. So a rite of passage is happening here as well. Tootie clearly accepts a challenge that terrifies her. And at the end, you know, her exclamation, I killed him, I'm the most horrible, is her sort of cry of joy that she's now joined you know with with uh, with the older children so she's she's you know from a from a toddler sort of young very young child she's joined the company of the older children she's she's a brilliant actress by the way that little girl margaret o'brien was her name and um it, it really really shows here you know how the children perceive um the community yeah. how they have different sort of layers of the community within you know, kind of different ages of children here. Uh, and of course, all of the rituals and their customs, you know, throwing flower, masking, bonfires. Again, remember what I was talking about before, about the, the tree grows in Brooklyn, unsupervised children sort of running right in the streets. That's not the sort of stuff that we, we sort of um, allow today, or, you know, it, it's definitely frowned upon. Well, this was completely normal. You know, the mother says, you know, go out there, make sure, don't throw too much flower and come back early, otherwise no ice cream. But I can't see, you know, many mothers sort of um, kind of condoning this sort of uh, behavior today to the extent that it is happening there. And remember, that's a film from the 40s, but it sort of represents the early 20th century. So some very interesting sort of um, uh, adaptations of Halloween customs there, but at the same time, this function of folklore and folk, folk customs to bring um, to bring uh, communities together and rites of passage for uh, from uh, childhood to adolescence, etc. In a way, all of that goes back to Robert Burns and what we said uh, before. And my third American classic, uh, which um, I, I presume that's the one that most people found more uh, strange to be mentioned in a Halloween context, although hopefully, you know, it'll all make sense in a minute, 
is uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. And of course, I mean, I'm sure you'll know this one. It was published in 1960 by uh, Harper Lee. It was a huge success instantly. Uh, it won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, and it, it is, a, you know, it, by definition, that's an American classic. Um, the main characters uh, are Scout, the young girl, and Jem, her father, the, her, sorry, her brother. Their father, who's a lawyer, is uh, Atticus Finch. Uh, interestingly, the children have a very um, sort of relaxed relationship with their father. They call him Atticus rather than father. The, the mother has died. Uh, you know, he's the only person they've got. And, and the setting really is the South, uh, uh, the American South in the 1930s. And the book seems to have two parallel plots. On the one hand, we have uh, the the storyline of uh, Tom Robinson, uh, a black man, a kind black man, actually. You know, he's portrayed as a very nice person who's falsely accused of raping a white woman. Uh, and, you know, that brings to mind all of these horrible sort of um, situations at the time of lynchings and sort of um, um, taking uh, the law onto communities' hands and, um, um, you know, kind of... Um, the the, the uh, anxiety of um, uh, relationships, interracial relationships at that point. Uh, but the second sort of storyline that's parallel to all of this is the story of Boo Radley. And Boo Radley is a neighbour of the children. He's a recluse. Um, he uh, is generally thought to be kind of a lunatic, deranged uh, and dangerous, and you know somebody who is a bit of a of a of a legend. Really, nobody knows enough about him, and there is you know something threatening or, or dangerous about him from what the rumours are. Uh, and um, in the, in the main sort of plot, Atticus uh, the the uh, father of the children takes up Tom's defense because he believes, you know, that he was actually innocent, which is, which is, you know, what we, what we realize from the plot. And the novel explores, of course, themes of racial, racial prejudice in the American South, but this parallel story with Boo Radley complicates these ideas of black and white, of masking and unmasking. And, and interestingly, one of the pivotal scenes of the novel towards the end takes place on Halloween. So even before we get to that, though, Boo Radley is already presented as a Halloween monster. So this is how um, how the book sort of uh, talks about him. So Jem, that's the brother, Jem gave a reasonable description of Boo. Boo was about six and a half feet tall, judging from his tracks. He dined on raw squirrels and any cats he could catch. That's why his hands were bloodstained. If you ate an animal raw, he could never wash the blood off. There was a long, jagged scar that ran across his face. What teeth he had were yellow and rotten. His eyes popped and he drooled most of the time. Now, notice the description here. Notice actually the parallels here between the description of Boo Radley and the rumours about Mr. Braukoff that we saw in the, in the uh, extract from Meet Me in St. Louis. This is a typical case of the sort of um, um, misunderstood... Uh, neighbor who's clearly ha you know has mental health issues, but this is all sort of um, um, marginalized and 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 made into a scare a, a, a scarecrow and scapegoat uh, in uh, the community at the time. So he's portrayed as a monster, you know, rotting teeth, and drooling, and eating raw squirrels. Remember with Mr. Bradcroft, he's eating you know kind of killing cats uh, and all of that. So a very sort of parallel. Uh, description of the monstrous in Boo Radley. So Boo, and of course his name is exactly that, the Boo, the bogey, boogie man. Uh, and this is now where all of this, you know, so this is in the background all the way through until we get to that very, as I said, pivotal scene towards the end where uh, it's all happening at Halloween. So first of all, we hear that Halloween recently in that particular community, Maycomb, had changed. 
So look at that. Until then, Halloween in Maycomb was a completely unorganized affair. Each child did what he wanted to do, with assistance from other children. But parents thought things went too far last year, and the piece of Miss Tootie and Miss Fruity was shattered. And I want, I want to kind of read all of it here, but we have a bit of a flashback to what happened in the previous year's Halloween, where some wicked boys had terrified two old maiden ladies, they're called, so two, two old spinsters, who were deaf. And they were, you know, frightened um, uh, out of their wits by, by some boys who kind of went a bit, a bit um, beyond, you know, the acceptable. So look how it continues then. So the Maycomb ladies said things would be different this year. The high school auditorium would be open. There would be a pageant for the grown-ups, apple bobbing, taffy pulling, pinning the tail on the donkey for the children. There would also be a prize of 25 cents for the best Halloween costume created by the wearer so see here now how, so how Halloween is slowly becoming more organized more sort of uh, overseen by parents and by school uh, and not sort of you know allowed to to uh, get out of control which is clearly you know the, what happened in this community before and clearly how it could have gone you know out of control in previous situations as I said without supervised children running right in the street so um, let's see then what would happen um, so it, our narrator here is, is um Scout, the girl. Gem and I both groaned. Not that we'd ever done anything at Halloween. It was the principle of the thing. Jem considered himself too old for Halloween anyway. He said he wouldn't be caught anywhere near the high school at something like that. Oh well, I thought Atticus would take me. I soon learned, however, that my services would be required on stage that evening. Mrs. Grace Merriweather had composed an original pa pageant entitled Macomb County at Astra per Aspera and I was to be a ham. She thought it would be adorable if some of the children were costumed to represent the country's agricultural products. Cecil Jacobs would be dressed up to look like a cow. Agnes Boone would make a lovely butter bean. Another child would be a peanut. And on down the line until Mrs. Merriweather's imagination and the supply of children were exhausted. Our only duties, as far as I could gather from our two rehearsals, were to enter from stage left, as Mrs. Merriweather, not only the author but the narrator, identified us. When she called out pork, that was my cue. Then the assembled company would sing, Maycomb County, Maycomb County, we will I be true to thee, as the grand finale and Mrs. Merriweather would mount the stage with the state flag. So this is the sort of the context of this sort of last uh, sort of scary scene that I'll come to in a minute. But let me talk you know through this this bit first. So as I said, this is all becoming organised. The school is getting involved. The parents are getting involved. And interestingly, Halloween is again associated with agriculture, with the product of the land, with particularly you know the products um, that are. Uh, is seasonal at that particular time. So it seems like we have here um, a revival of some older kind of traits of Halloween as an agricultural and farming uh, festival, but at the same time it's much more organized, much more sort of, you could even say patronized, you know, the, the, the grown-ups are taking over and they're writing lines for the children and the children dressing up, you know, I mean, Scout, this is, this is kind of hilarious that Scout is dressed as a ham. Um, but there we go. You know, when I first read the book as a very young girl, I was thinking, so how do you dress as a ham? You know, how, how would a, you know, her costume look like? But of course, actually, we get quite a detailed description of a, a wired sort of construction around her and how she, she gets, she dresses uh, as a ham. So all of this is happening then. The uh, scout is supposed to go to the school pageant and be a ham, uh, but, but Meanwhile, something else has happened. So let me tell you that before I move to the next scene. So 
Tom Robinson, actually, the, the black man who Atticus was, was convicting, has been uh, convicted, has been, has been found guilty. And we know that was, that was an unfair conviction. But the father of the girl who was supposedly raped, uh, uh, Bob Ewell, um, was, he, he found that he was humiliated by the events of the trial because it was revealed that he was a drunkard, that he was a liar, etc. And he has vowed revenge against Atticus. So Atticus and the children are sort of, they, they sort of know that somebody's got it for them and, you know, something might happen. So what happened is that uh, as, the, as Scout and, and Jem, uh, Jem actually comes to get Scout from the school because Atticus decides I'm not getting involved in this school thing. So the two children come back, you know, through, through a sort of dark, area of the of the community and uh, uh bob Ewell attacks the children you know the defenseless children in the dark at night after the school halloween pageant because all of this then is happening on halloween night and what happens is that one of jem's arms is broken so it's a pretty violent confrontation with the children uh, in the struggle but amid the confusion and before uh, Bob Ewell manages to kill the children, somebody intervenes. Somebody comes in and saves the children, but it's dark and they can't see who it is and they're all uh, kind of ushered quickly into one of the, in, in, back into the house and that somebody who saved them comes in, but they don't know who he is. They don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. And this is now the scene just after when they're asked by the sheriff, the sheriff to tell, to tell, you know, what happened. So I've, I've kind of, uh, cut that, uh, most of the detail here. So this is Scout talking here. Mr. Ewell was trying to squeeze me to death, I reckon. Then somebody yanked Mr. Ewell down. Jem must have gotten up, I guess. That's all I know. And then Mr. Tate was looking at me sharply. I thought Atticus had come to help us and had got wore out. So who was it? Why, there he is, Mr. Tate. He can tell you his name. As I said it, I half-pointed to the man in the corner, but brought my heart down quickly lest Atticus reprimand me for pointing. It was impolite to point. He was still leaning against the wall. He had been leaning against the wall when I came into the room, his arms folded across his chest. As I pointed, he brought his arms down and pressed the palms of his hands against the wall. There were white hands, sickly white hands that had never seen the sun so white they stood out garishly against the dull cream wall in the dim light of Jem's room I looked from his hands to his sun-stained khaki pants my eyes travelled up his thin frame to his torn denim shirt his face was as white as his hands but were a shadow of his jutting chin his cheeks were thin to hollowness his mouth was wide there were shallow almost delicate indentations at his temples and his grey eyes were so colourless I thought he was blind. His hair was dead and thin, almost feathery on top of his head. When I pointed to him, his palms slipped slightly, leaving greasy sweat streaks on the wall, and he hooked his thumbs in his belt. A strange, small spasm shook him, as if he heard fingernails scrape slate. But as I gazed at him in wonder, the tension slowly drained from his face. His lips parted, into a timid smile and I neighbor, neighbor's image blurred with my sudden tears hey boo I said so this is the as I said the climactic point really of the story where the children are attacked the children are saved we don't know who their saviour is until suddenly uh, we have this description of this man who is nearly an albino you know he seems to have never never been outside he's described as you know his skin is very white his hair are white even his eyes look white he looks very very pale somebody who's who hasn't seen the sun ever who's kind of 
timid and shy and smiles at Scout and suddenly Scout realizes that this is the man they've been thinking, you know, was a monster all of this time. You know, their neighbor, this is Boo Radley. Boo Radley has come out to sort of help, uh, help them and save them. And I think this is the point where a lot of the symbolism of this novel actually comes to uh, fruition. Because you could say that the whole novel plays with the imagery of fear, you know, the threat to Tom Robinson, the threat to Atticus and the children, but of course the fear of Boo Radley as well, the fear of this monstrous sort of uh, lunatic uh, who the children think, you know, about at the beginning of the novel. But of course, all the way through, because we have the prejudice, you know, the racial prejudice as a central theme, we seem to have an extended sort of, one of the extended themes of the novel is this problematizing of outward appearance, so what, what we see, and inner nature, what is outside, what is inside. So the idea of whiteness and blackness uh, of skin seems to be, in a way, a mask, so that a scout realizes that, you know, black people are being sort of... Um, painted as monsters, as, you know, these awful people who are doing all these awful things. But, of course, the dark skin uh, is, is hiding, you know, something that is much, much more wholesome and good and, and honest, actually, much more honest than the white people we see, a lot of the white people we see in the novel. So the skin colour disguises uh, the people's real nature. But, of course, uh, when we see Boo here, we see the other extreme. We see extreme whiteness, whiteness to the point that it's never been seen, you know, it's never seen the sun. And that is the other side of this. Uh, and, of course, again, we see goodness in a character who's been portrayed up until this time as a monster as a Halloween monster in a way, as I said, these drooling sort of yellow-teethed, uh, um, um, scary, scary uh, boogeyman. And these climactic final scenes of the novels, as I said, I think it's, it is on purpose in all of, none of this is accidental, that it's all happening on Halloween night, um, that the children sort of returning from this, from this, fest, from this um, 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 celebration at school, and it seems like the darkness where all of this attack to the children is happening is a sort of dressing up, is a sort of mask as well. So Scout, when they're being attacked, can't see very much of the scene. She's trapped in her costume as well, this ham costume that I was talking about before. And and she, um, in a way, she's attacked. You know, the man who attacks them is a white man dressed up by this darkness, dressed up in black uh, of the darkness. And it's the extreme sort of whiteness, the sickly whiteness of Boo Radley that saves them at the end. And I think what the novel seems to be saying on that level is that all masks are illusions. You know, all this outward appearance is an illusion. What counts is what's inside. You know, anything, uh, or, or, you know, whatever we believe um, from what we see um, might be very wrong. And, you know, we need, we need to dig deeper, really, to, um, to see the truth, really, there. Okay. Um, I can see lots of questions, so I might stop for a second just to see um, what else uh, has come up, and then I might uh, pass over to Corey for another. How are we doing with time? Um, We're fine. We definitely we have a few more minutes if you if you we want have to. Yep. Okay. What does *To Kill a Mockingbird* have to do with? Ha oh, right. Okay. Well, there you go. Somebody was asking, "What does *To Kill a Mockingbird* have to do with Halloween?" Well, hopefully, I've uh, I've shown you what what, what it is, uh, and hopefully, it all makes sense now. But I, I, you know, that's the sort of question I was expecting. So fine. Yeah, my instinct was right that some people would be surprised. Um, yes. Okay. Um, there we go. Yes. Um, 
I've got Joyce here saying it seems that we have a gradual taming of the wild and the unknown. Absolutely spot on. That's exactly what's happening here. Uh, and you know, the, the unknown is made is made to be visible and and harmless. Absolutely. So this idea of you know outward appearance and inner nature uh, are are, are, um, are played uh, throughout throughout the novel actually. But I think it really culminates uh, in these. Um, in this last scene, good, excellent. Okay, um, I'll, I'll pass on uh, uh, over to Corey then. I do have two last slides with a few more sort of um, sort of suggestions of what else to read on Halloween. Uh, but maybe maybe uh, Corey want to have a have a, another little um, interlude, and then I'll just do another five minute and close it. Like, what do you think, Corey? Does that sound like a plan? Sure. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. Let me just uh, quick um, do. We wanted to. Uh, we've been giving away prizes all day uh, to thank people for coming and joining us here today. So we wanted to give another prize, and uh, our prize today um, for this segment is we're going to be giving away copies of the books that uh, Dr. Femi has been talking about. So you can choose. Um, you can choose among the different. Um, the different options that, uh, so we have a couple of them we're going to be giving away at the, at the same time. But anyway, you can email us and tell us which of the books you're interested in. Um, and we're going to do a, co a collection of, of the Burns poems, uh, the, uh, the, the Washington Irving stories, and then the tree grows in Brooklyn and, uh, uh, um, to kill a mockingbird together. So, uh, so you can choose which ones you like. And the winner of our drawing, uh, here is Kat Sass. Congratulations, Kat. Uh, you are the winner for this segment. So you can go ahead and send, um, uh, send an email to, to, uh, to info at Signum and, uh, we will, uh, we will, we'll get you, uh, your, your prize, uh, copy of the book. So, um, so thanks. Okay. And well, well uh, Dr. Femi, I'll let you finish up here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, you go. Well, I know it's getting late over there. So. Yeah, no, 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 that's fine, that's fine. Uh, yeah, well done. For those of you that, you know, didn't, didn't win this bit, I have just, uh, tweeted another couple of links to, uh, uh, Robert Burns' Halloween. Actually, that's the edition with his notes with a glossary because the Scottish dialect is, is difficult. And also, uh, um, Sleepy Hollow is out of copyright, so I sent a link to that as well. Um, there we go. Well, it's a great idea though to, to, um, give copies of those books. That's lovely. So the last, just a couple of suggestions for other things. You know, I could, I could, I could do a whole course on Halloween. No, don't get me, don't tempt me. No, no, no. I didn't say that. Okay. Um, a couple more things then. So, uh, the, one of my favorites that has a, a good sort of combination of Halloween customs, but also using Halloween creatively is, um, Let's see if I can get it here. Agatha Christie's Halloween Party. Uh, and that is, that was published in 1969. Interestingly, it's sort of spelled with this, um, with this apostrophe there. So that's an older way of spelling Halloween. Uh, and this is the blurb sort of for the book. You know, mystery writer Ariadne Oliver has been invited to Woodley Common where Halloween parties underway for a group of local adolescents. See adolescents, you know, that seems to have been sort of retained as an idea, this, this liminal kind of time. One of the guests is a young girl known for telling tall tales of murder and intrigue. When the girl is found drowned in an apple bobbing tub, Ariadne wonders just how tall her latest tale was. Which of the party guests wanted to keep her quiet? And masking a killer this Halloween isn't going to be easy for Hercule Poirot. So we have all sorts of interesting things happening here. First of all, the customs that um, uh, Agatha Christie is uh, actually describing here are pretty much authentic, you know, and at the time actually, if anything, they were a bit old-fashioned. I'm not quite sure all of that stuff was happening in 1969. So maybe she's sort of looking at an older time. So there's apple bobbing and dragon snap 
at snapping and so there is also dressing up um, um, competition etc and there are younger children but there are also teenagers and I think the teenagers are the, at the center you know what happens in this story and we've got Hercule Poirot who kind of turns the whole thing into a very sort of mystical um, um, uh, theme and it, and it is about the dead it is about um, um, of course you know that the murder and murder happens at, a, at the Halloween party at the bobbin of apples you know one of the most traditional sort of uh, customs but of course this is about an old murder you know we realize that the whole thing is about who, who knows you know who has information about a murder that happened a long long time ago so this idea of bringing back the dead also plays quite nicely. Um, and I think it, it works quite nicely with a crime or detective fiction here because there is a puzzle to be solved and all of the elements come from traditional sort of uh, Halloween um, uh, customs. And and the last one I wanted to sort of, uh, and again, ho hopefully you all know this one, but just in case, you know, it, it's a brilliant book and this is a children's book really and that's The Halloween Tree by Ray Bradbury and on the left you've got one of the uh, early editions and on the right is the cartoon um, um, version which was uh, done as an adaptation um, actually quite a long time ago I think was it in the 80s um, it, it's an old film but you know it, it, it is, I, I think it, it, if I'm not wrong it, it, they do play it in, in American TV around this time of the year so if you know if you haven't seen it, it, it it's really worth it uh, but the book is lovely of course uh, and we have a group of eight neighborhood boys who go, go trick-or-treating on Halloween uh, and one of the friends Pipkin who is, you know, as they keep on saying, the best boy among them, you know, the nicest of them, the kinder, etc. He's missing. Uh, and when they arrive at Pipkin's house to get him with them to go, hallow, uh, to go trick and treating, they discover that he's ill. And Pipkin tells the boys that he will catch up with them, so go ahead and I'll, I'll catch up with you. And what the, the boys do is they head towards the, the largest house in town, which is the haunted house. And in the yard, they can see a Halloween tree. And what is that? It's a hundred feet tall tree and it's hanged with a multitude of jack-o'-lanterns so something magical is going to happen there this is a normal you know there's something there's something supernatural and they meet the occupant of the house who is Mr. Carpe's clavel called Mount Shroud who seems to be some sort of symbol symbolic sort of figure for, for death or for for um for for a, a ghostly sort of a supernatural presence so mr manshroud actually what he does is he spirits away the boys and he takes them time traveling through space and time to discover the origins of the real halloween so they go to ancient egypt and they witness a funeral procession they kind of go and find the halloween of the celts you know there's all sorts of problems with that but as i said i'm not going to go into that uh, the persecution of witches in the dark ages the gargoyles of notre dame so all sorts of european traditions really uh, the uh, el dia de los muertos in mexico and what happens is that early in their travels pipkin appears but he seems to be carried away by the spirits of Halloween. And as, the, as they travel through time, the other boys try to find and save Pipkin. And there is this idea that there's something dangerous going on. I'm not, I don't quite want to tell you what the whole point is and how it all ends, because I think I might spoil it for you. But the, you know, the themes of sort of, um, uh, ghosts and spirits and, and the, the dangers of, um, uh, mortality are, are evoked here but of course all of this idea of uh, how many cultures are all around the world have festivals to do with the dead and with spirits and with um, kind of the human soul uh, are quite important and all of that is dressed up in a nice sort of um, in a nice uh, way 
that is it is written for children, maybe older children, but you know it, it is it is scary at times and spooky, but not you know horror really. It is a much much nicer, much kinder, and in a way a very um a very sort of uh, philosophical book in in many ways. As I said, I don't I don't want to give away too much uh, because if you haven't read it, it's it's worth it's worth having a go, or, or if you haven't seen the uh, the cartoon adaptation. Um, this was just, you know, just to wrap it up. This was a selection of um, of, of stuff. You know, the, the Halloween is it is there in many many uh, texts, in many many films, in many, um, and of course it's 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 there in all of our lives. And you know, we go through all of these folk customs and 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 rites and rituals uh, every year. Uh, and what I hope I've shown you is how. Um, how the folklore around Halloween has has um, uh, gradually changed from a peasant sort of agricultural uh, festival associated with with a church, a, Chris, a Christian sort of um, hue of um, um, a kind of remembering the dead, to something that has to do with community, with liminality, with adolescence, with uh, the urban world as we know today. And clearly, where we ended up today, some of Halloween is very much sort of controlled by adults. Uh, much more sort of, yeah, I suppose it's 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 lost some of its um, spontaneity. Uh, but you know, we still we still you know it's still quite an important thing, uh, and uh, it it has become you know you you could you could be very cynical and say today it's become a multi multi million dollar industry. But I think at the heart of it, there's still some some elements that um, you know still harking to those to those um, ideas of um, seasonality of liminality of the passage of time and of course you know remembering uh, um, beloved people who, who have died uh, relatives or friends um, so it is it is a very kind of, there is something uh, there's something bonding about taking part in Halloween uh, rituals and festivals even today even though you know it seems like most of us think about it as, as a children's um, holiday which I'm hoping, you know, I've shown you today that, that there's much more complex and deep things going on there. So that that's that's all from me really today. I hope you enjoyed this, and please, uh, please, um, um, if you can, uh, contribute to the fundraising event for Mythgard. It's it's a it's a wonderful um, initiative. I've been very, um, um, it, it's been a pleasure to take part uh, in teaching here, and um, I've always enjoyed the interaction with the students, and I think it gives the opportunity for. Um, uh, lifelong learning in a way that uh, is accessible to lots of people who wouldn't have the opportunity otherwise. Um, so yeah, let's let's see if um, if uh, uh, the the target can be met tonight. That would make me very very happy. Anyway, thank you all very much for having me, and very, over to you, Corey. Very good. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Demetra. I uh, have been. Um, We've really enjoyed uh, that lecture. I did learn a lot. I'm a I'm a huge fan of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, particularly. It's possibly my favorite American book, actually. Um, but um, and and I in, in particular, I've been uh, I was I was I was really struck by that image of, in, especially in the final scene, um, of the way that w which the darkness itself serves as a mask, and thinking about that how how delightful it is when, you know, Mister Yule is coming out and 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 attacking them with the you know in the mask of darkness, and especially the the description of of Scout being inside her ham costume, right, and she can't even really see what's going on, so her own mask, her own literal mask, right, is sort of masking everybody from her and. 
And, and then, uh, and, but then of course, and at that same moment, Boo Radley, you know, sort of removes his, his mask. And it's just the, 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 uh, the, the elegance of that moment. It's so, it's so wonderful. So I just, I, I was, I, I've been, I've been, that was, that was my favorite, uh, my favorite <laughs> indie to, to, narrow, to focus down to a very narrow point, uh, you know, my favorite moment uh, of the talk. But it was uh, uh, it was really great to uh, to hear about, and I, I'm sure that uh, I speak for everybody in 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 thanking you very much and saying that was really wonderful. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great. Okay. Good night. Good night. <laughs>